One of my favourite TV shows is Have You Been Paying Attention? Have you been paying attention? Anyone familiar with Have You Been Paying Attention? It's an Aussie uh, sort of game show put on by uh, the working dog mob who brought you movies like The Dish or The Late Show, part of my generation, I suppose. But Have You Been Paying Attention is uh, a quiz show where comedians are asked uh, questions from current affairs. They're asked questions from news and current affairs, events that have been taking place in, in recent days and weeks with a simple question of, have you been paying attention? Do you, do you really know uh, what's going on? And today, Jesus is effectively going to be asking the same thing. He asked the same question, really, of his own disciples. They've been following him for a little while now. If you're a regular here at CMP, you'll know that they've been following uh, Matthew's gospel for a little while. He's called his disciples to follow him. He has sent them out. He's sent them out like lambs, sheep out among the wolves. Uh, he, he has uh, he's walked, he's, he's performed miraculous uh, miracles. And so now he, he sort of gives them a, a little bit of a, a test. He wants to know if they're really grasping uh, what's going on. So he wants to know, are you really familiar with, with what's happening here, fellas? Are you really, are you really aware of, of who I am and what it means to be my follower for your life and indeed for all of eternity? It is, in effect, the same question that Jesus asks of us still today. So I'm going to be putting it to us, each of us this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you really aware of what it means to bear the name Christ, to be, to be known as Christ's one, which is what the word Christian really just means. It means you are Christ's one, that you belong to Christ. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you straight up, uh, who do you say Jesus is? Or perhaps more importantly, to just change the emphasis, who do you say Jesus is? Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be reading from verses 13 through to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Church, let's pray. A challenging question for us this morning, Lord, so we do pray that you will reveal yourself to us. We pray that you might help us to answer with truth, boldness, courage, grace, in word and in deed, all the days, all the days of, our of our lives. All the people, all the people said. said. Oh, man. So it starts, so it starts off with a general, general question. question. It starts, it starts off by asking, asking the buzz. What's, what's the word on the street, street guys? guys? What's the vibe? vibe? Uh, who are people saying, saying that, that I am out there? They, they respond, respond, they give you an answer. They think he's John the Baptist come back to life or one of the prophets of old come back perhaps. 
But you see, Jesus pushes them. He doesn't let them get away with simply answering, well, who other people say that he is? He sort of narrows in and he pushes them. He doesn't let them off the hook. He says, yes, okay, well, that's, that's fine, um, but, but, but what about you? He says, he, he makes it personal. He drills down. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter, as he often does, is the one that pipes up first. He's a bit of a loud mouth, Pete. Uh, as often as, as not, he puts his foot in it. But on this time, in the, on this occasion, he nails it. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So let's just unpack this answer for just a moment, the Messiah. This word Messiah, it's, uh, it, it is the same as the Christ, Christ Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus' surname, it's more like a title. You might more accurately say Jesus the Christ. Messiah and Christ are the same word. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. Uh, it literally just means, if you look at it literally, it means the anointed one, or one who is anointed. You see, kings back in the day would be anointed with oil. Most famously, the mighty King David was anointed uh, with oil by the prophet Samuel when he was announced as the next king. Kings, when they assumed the throne, be anointed with oil. With oil. It was a, a sign of kingship and of authority, of divine blessing. This is God's chosen one. So you might think of it as being God's chosen king, the chosen one that God has selected uh, to, 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 lead his, to lead his people. Of course, they thought that that would mean that he was going to be a, a warrior king, a, a mighty king in the line of, of, of David. Um, so that is what this word Messiah means, God's chosen one, his, his, his chosen, chosen king. And son of the, son of the living God, well, that is a, a, a reference to the second person of what we followers of Jesus call the Trinity. We believe in one God who exists in, in three persons or three personas, God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, is God's son, is the terminology uh, that, that we earthly humans uh, can grasp this, this concept, that, that God came to earth in the, in the form of, uh, of a man. Uh, when we look to Jesus, we see God. My two eldest children struggle in life because they, they look like me. It's a terrible burden to have placed my, my kids under, but a number of people down through the years have commented how Bethany and Sebastian uh, look like me. Uh, if you look at pictures of me when I had hair, uh, look at Sebastian, uh, that's what my hair looked like. Uh, people have commented how much they, they look like, look like me. Just as a, as a child sort of reflects the parent, so too Jesus reflects the Father. Uh, Colossians 1, if you wanted to dive down a little bit deeper for yourself this week, you can read some of, well, one of my favourite chapters of all of the Bible, Colossians chapter 1, some soaring, beautiful, um, poetic language about who this Jesus is. And, and Paul writes that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. And I encourage you to go away and to drill down a little bit yourself. You've got a bit more time than what we have here this morning. Colossians chapter 1. He's the very image of the invisible God. The invisible God who can't be seen. When you look to Jesus, you can see what, what God is, is like. The early church 
struggle to sort of make sense of all of this. And you can almost see a development in the Christology. Christology is the study of the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. It's a branch of Christian theology. And you can see, if you open up Scripture and you get to know it, you can see the Christology developing throughout the New Testament. In the early Gospels, like, like Matthew or Mark in particular, they're still trying to come to terms, come to wrestle. Who is Jesus exactly. But then by the time John's gospel is written, John is the, the most the, the, the later gospel that is written. And by that stage, the church is really coming to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, that he's not just a wise prophet, he's not just a, a great moral teacher. No, no, Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. John chapter 1 opens up by saying, uh, the word or the logos, God's message to us, talking about Jesus. Jesus is God in skin, he's God in the flesh, he's God's message, his word to us in skin. He famously says that in the beginning was the word and the, and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was God. Jesus, later on in John chapter 10, verse 30, comes out and says it straight up. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in skin, the incarnation, come from the Latin carne, uh, meaning, meaning flesh. Uh, Jesus is not just some great moral teacher, as many would try to tell you. C.S. Lewis has the best uh, refute of that sort of thinking. C.S. Lewis famously, in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, puts it this way. Oh, let me read it to you straight, because he puts it better than I can. C.S. Lewis says, I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, says C.S. Lewis. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He says you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing, patronizing nonsense, says C.S. Lewis, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is, is God. He wants you to know that he is, is God. So if you're wanting to know why does God favor the downtrodden. Why does God seem to show favour for the lost? Well, because Jesus did. Because Jesus would associate with sinners, tax collectors and, and prostitutes. He even associated with the worst of the bunch, the religious leaders. He would even sit down and dine, even with those that thought they were better than everybody else. That's how gracious Jesus actually was. How do we know that God wants to turn around your dark times and, and bring about healing and wholeness and light? Because we look to the cross of Christ. We look to Easter. We are the Easter people that after the death and the tragedy of Good Friday, we look to Easter Sunday, to resurrection and to new life. Amen. 
Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. When we look to Jesus, when we see Jesus coming to us through the pages of Scripture, we get a glimpse of what our Heavenly Father looks like, about who He is and, and what He truly values. In answering this question, though, I want to just give you a little bit of a word of warning. Don't think of it as a test. I think we've only sort of partially grasped the answer if we think of it as a as sort of tick a box, like multiple choice, tick the right answer. I think Jesus wants so much more than for us to simply pass sort of an intellectual kind of knowledge test. This is more than just an, an exam to get the right answer. Jesus actually wants to be in a relationship with you. The Christian faith is, is not a religion in that it's not about rule keeping and doing a whole bunch of good stuff and not doing a whole bunch of bad stuff in order to earn your way into God's good books. This is a, a living, breathing relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so can I encourage you, like Jesus does, to really be challenged, rather than just talking about who other people might say that he is, and, and allow yourself to be challenged by his very pointed, personal question, who do you say that I am? When people find out I'm a minister, on a number of occasions now, I've run into atheists who know a lot about Jesus. I've run into atheists that have even been to Bible college. They study the Christian faith, because the church has obviously been very influential in Western society. So they, they know a lot about Jesus. They've read a lot of textbooks. They know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. A lot of people, I think, in the church can be like that too. You can come along here to church on a Sunday and still not really be a follower of Jesus. Just walking into a church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus any more than walking into a stable makes you a horse. It's actually about a living, breathing relationship with, with Jesus. It's a little bit like love, I think. It's a little bit trying to describe being in love. You can describe what love is. Trying to describe who Jesus is and actually knowing him and loving him is a little bit like trying to describe what love is compared to actually being in love. I would much rather a hug or an act of love from a loved one than rather someone tell me a little bit, bit what love actually is, wouldn't you? It moves it out of the theoretical and into the personal. Remember, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. Love needs to be, love needs to be put into action. Can I encourage you to not just be going through the motions of naming yourself as a follower of Jesus? Soren Kierkegaard was a famous, famous theologian, a famous philosopher. So if you're into those sort of things, you'll know the name Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and theologian. And he called, he was a Christian guy, and, and he had a rather damning statement for many of his fellow Christians who just sort of went through the motions of coming to church without really let, letting Jesus affect their lives. He called, he called them shopkeeping souls. What a damning phrase, shopkeeping souls. His way of saying they, they, they keep the shop, they keep up a good front, they keep up a good pretense, they go through the motions, but there's no bone-rattling faith there. The faith is somewhat lifeless, somewhat dull. They go through life occupying a space. What is it in your life that is tempting you to just simply be a shopkeeping soul? Whether it's building a boat, 
collecting stamps, playing pickleball, whatever it is, all of those things are good things. Don't get me wrong, but if you're living for those things, then you've really missed the point, I think, of what Jesus is trying to say here. Later on, Jesus, God, would have another very devastating word for this sort of a soul. In the book of Revelation, an angel of the God is, uh, is, is describing people who name themselves as Christians, but the fire's gone out. In a letter to the church in Laodicea, Revelation starts off with a, uh, a message to seven different churches, and a church in a city called Laodicea is damned with faint praise. Does anyone know the term that is used in Revelation to describe the church in Laodicea? Sure, some of you do. Lukewarm. They are lukewarm Christians, a damning phrase. Not hot, but not cold, just kind of, eh, just kind of lukewarm. So it actually describes, God says he's going to spit them out of his mouth. It's actually a polite way of saying vomit. He's going to spew them out of his mouth because they're neither hot nor cold. So church, can I encourage us to make sure that we are known for our zeal, for our passion, that we are known uh, this week as Benita was this week, as a people who make a difference, as the people who live out their faith, as the people who put flesh on the bones of their faith, who not just say that they love God, but actually live it, actually put it into action in, in words and, and deeds. God isn't interested in what other people say. He's not interested in what your minister, your pastor says. He's not interested in what your doctrinal statement of your church, your denomination might say. He's not interested in what the media might tell you. He's not interested in what your grandparents once said. I've heard plenty of people say, oh, my granddad was a Methodist minister. Oh, my mother ran the women's auxiliary in the local Presbyterian church. What do you think? do you think? God wants to know if he's Lord of your life. He wants to know if he is number one in your life. I want to leave you with a bit of a challenge about this bone rattling, deep down on fire faith in Christ that Jesus wants to be assured of in your life. He wants to be number one. I'm going to leave you with a, with a clip from a a very famous uh, sermon uh, from a, a Dr. S.M. Lockridge who preaches in a way that a white Aussie guy really can't. <laughs> preaches in a way that only Southern Baptist, I think, probably can. This is just a little clip uh, that, is, that is, is titled, That's My King. This is who Jesus wants to be. He wants to be your king. And Dr. Lockridge puts it in such poetic terms that I wanted to share it with you this morning. It's been animated by some very clever people and it's on the YouTubes if you're wanting to go and see it for yourself. This is Dr. S.M. Lockridge with That's My King. Make him your king today. Thanks, guys. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. 
no means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-framed of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him. So yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, come and be king of our lives. Come and reign in each of our lives. Father, we declare that you are Lord of our life. Come and take possession of us this morning. Come and take possession of me. You are king. You are Lord. You are sovereign. I offer myself to you this day. I offer to you everything that I am. All that I am, Father, I I offer to you in, in service to you, Lord. This week, Heavenly Father, I will live for you. I lay down my own life. I I lay down my own agendas, Father, and I seek more of you. Come and speak through me this week, Lord. You are my Lord. You are my God. You are my King. Have your way in me this day and forevermore. And all the church said...